Hello, everyone, and thanks for dropping in for another episode of Altitude Crime. I'm Amelia Allen, and we are talking Colorado true crime stories. But before we get started, please remember to follow or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. This will help other people find Altitude Crime and keep our crime clan growing. I also want to take a minute to give a huge shout out to my new favorite YouTuber, Cop Facts. That's C-O-P-F-A-X-X, two words. That is Perry Freeman. He is actually an ex-Colorado Springs Police Department detective. And he has a YouTube channel where he talks about a range of things. Some is how to become a cop. Other things are about current cases that are going on. And he is just a wonderful human and gave a huge shout out to Altitude Crime on his most recent video. So go ahead and check that out. He's got another really cool interview on there that I think you guys would be interested in. So again, that's Cop Facts, two words, and Facts is F-A-X-X. Now, I don't cover a lot of current events here on the podcast, but I do want to address the current upheaval in Afghanistan, and I would really like to take a moment of silence with all of you for the fatalities that have occurred in Kabul, as well as just the general upheaval that's going on there. I'd like to have a brief moment of silence. Thank you so much for taking that time with me. I think it's always important to take moments to center on what's going on in our world, even if it's hard to think about. So let's get on to this week's episode. I also want to give a big shout out to my good friend Liz from Thornton, Colorado. She actually requested this case and it's a pretty big one. This will actually be a two-parter episode. I do want to put out a little warning to listeners though. Pretty much this entire case revolves around rape and if That is something that is difficult for you to hear about. I do want to put that little disclaimer out if you would like to skip this episode and next week's episode. In August 2008 in Linwood, Washington, a woman was raped in her home by a masked intruder. She would go on to not only endure the trauma of her rape, but of a police force that didn't believe her and a community that turned against her. So why are we talking about a crime in Washington on a Colorado crime podcast? Because Washington would be just the start of a string of rapes, eventually ended by a random conversation with a Colorado detective and her patrolman husband. The city of Golden, Colorado is home to about 20,000 people. Given the population, the police force in the town is pretty small, consisting of about 40 officers. On January 5th, 2011, the on-call Golden Police Department detective, Stacy Galbraith, would respond to a call regarding a sexual assault. The victim was a 26-year-old college student studying engineering. The victim had been on her winter break from college. In recounting her attack, the golden victim was able to give a lot of detail for Detective Galbraith. The intruder had entered her house while she was sleeping. 
He wore a mask and gloves. While threatening her with a gun, he forced her to do her makeup and put her hair in pigtails. Once she was tied up, he forced thigh-high stockings onto her legs and forced her feet into clear high heels with pink ribbons. While she was in this state of being tied up, he took multiple pictures of her with what looked like a small pink digital camera. He then defiled her body in multiple ways. This victim did have a spectacular memory of her assault, even remembering that her rapist had an egg-shaped birthmark on one of his calves. This investigation would prove to be a challenge for Detective Galbraith. Most of the sexual assaults that she had worked up to that point were cases in which the victim knew who had raped them. It is more common in sexual assaults that the person who is the rapist is someone the victim knows. It's an old flame or maybe somebody that's new in their lives. These assaults where the perpetrator is known by the victim can be really tough because they become a lot of he said, she said, and they're very hard to prosecute. There's always that lingering question of if the victim is lying to make sense of a bad sexual encounter. And this is what makes sexual assault unique in general, as the victim is often not taken as immediately credible. What was different about this particular case was that it was both a rape and a stranger attack. Only about 13% of reported rapes are by strangers that the victim has no acquaintance with. According to Jacqueline Tempera's reporting for Women's Health, when asked how she tackled this case, Detective Galbraith said, quote, There is a huge push to believe your victim, and it is not as simple as that. I can't believe every single thing. I can listen to the information, take down the information, and then corroborate or refute it, unquote. She has said that her strategy is to, quote, listen to victims, unquote. As far as the investigation went, Detective Galbraith didn't have much of a place to start. The scene was pretty clean, and it was obvious that the perpetrator knew to be cautious of what evidence and DNA they left behind. Later that evening, when talking with her husband, who was night patrol in Westminster, Colorado, he had thought that there were one or two cases in his jurisdiction with a similar M.O., He told Galbraith to reach out to the Westminster PD the next day and see if she could get any information. This question would connect Galbraith with Detective Edna Hendershot in Westminster, Colorado. While Galbraith was newer to the force and really fast moving in her investigations, Hendershot had a lot more experience and brought a different kind of diligence to her victims' cases to the table. They immediately found that there were two cases within the Westminster files that could match the sexual assault that Galbraith was looking into in Golden. Upon a more detailed look, it was found that one of the cases was not similar, but the second had very clear similarities to the sexual assault that had just happened in Golden. The biggest difference between the two cases was that the victim profiles were very different. The Westminster case happened in August of 2010, and the victim was 59 years old. She was over 30 years older than the victim in the Golden case. While Detective Hendershot of the Westminster PD had investigated over 100 rape cases in her career at this point, she had just not gotten a break in this case yet. 
A big connection between the two cases, besides the interesting M.O. of the perpetrator, was that a camera matching the description of the one the golden victim saw used on her had actually been stolen from the Westminster victim. So it was very possible that both rapes were carried out by the same person, and he had continued to carry this camera with him as he continued along his sexual assault route. Once the two detectives were looking into this further, Westminster ended up connecting their case to one in Aurora. The Aurora detective's name was Scott Burgess, and this case happened on October 5th, 2009. The victim was a 65-year-old grandmother who was a house mother for a fraternity. And as if that wasn't enough, with three very similar cases adding up in three different jurisdictions, it would be Detective Hendershot's crime analyst from Westminster that picked up on similarities in a Lakewood burglary. Upon looking closer, investigators would realize that this was actually not just a burglary, it was an attempted rape. The assault in Lakewood happened in July 2010. The victim in this case was a 46-year-old woman who was an artist, and she was actually able to escape her attacker. The intruder had let his guard down for just a moment and looked away while he was preparing to tie up her hands. She took the opportunity and leapt out of a window to get away from him. She suffered really serious injuries as a result of the fall, which included a fractured vertebrae, a punctured lung, and broken ribs, but these would prove to be minor in comparison to the emotional injuries that she would have obtained had he been able to go through with her rape. Once these four police departments connected and saw that they had a very similar case in all jurisdictions, alarm was definitely raised. The three rapes and one attempted rape all took place between October 2009 and January 2011 with the last three incidents occurring closer and closer together. It seemed that the person that was behind these rapes was intensifying and could most likely do the same thing to another woman very soon. Now you have to keep in mind, even though we're talking about four different cities, the proximity of these towns are super close. They're basically all suburbs of Denver, which means you could drive from one to the other in 30 minutes or less. But, since they all are their own cities, that means every single one had its own police department. So even though this rapist was working in such a small radius, there was a huge chance that these jurisdictions may have never have talked to each other if it weren't for Detective Galbraith and her husband talking about this case specifically. Additionally, all of these areas are pretty middle class and really nice, so these were also kind of odd occurrences for the locations themselves. Given the nature of the crimes and the pattern that was coming to light, a task force was created that included the FBI, Colorado Bureau of Investigation, or CBI, and somebody from all four police departments. The good thing about some of the cases being a little bit more spread out and not as recent as the Golden case was that the cases were worked really well, such as in the Aurora and Westminster case. So it was a little easy to start a larger multi-county investigation since some of the cases had been worked pretty thoroughly and there was kind of some little bit more clear places to start. Part of why these cases alarmed investigators in general is that according to studies, somewhere between one quarter and two thirds of rapists are serial rapists. So strings of rapes like this that 
are at the hands of one person don't happen super, super often. You may be wondering what made these four different police departments really think that the same guy was responsible for all of these different rapes. And really, he had a very similar M.O. in all of the cases, and his planning and sexual needs during the encounters made his attacks really unique. They found that it definitely seemed that he would watch his victims for a very long time prior to the attack. He would enter the home at night when the woman was sleeping and usually threaten her with either a knife or a gun. A knife was used in three of the cases with a gun being used on the last one. The women then, in addition to being raped, would also be tied up and photographed. And the pictures that he took seemed to be a very large part of orchestrating the rape in general. He also threatened all of the women that if they called the police, he would post the pictures online. He also made them get kind of dressed up. He made some of the women put on heels. Some had to do their makeup and hair. There definitely was a very clear sexual motivator behind his crimes besides just the rape itself. He was also very careful with evidence. In all cases, he wore a mask and he wore latex gloves during the attacks. But his diligence did not stop there. He would force his victims to brush their teeth, as he would usually force them to have oral sex with him. And he would also force the women to shower before he left, even in one case setting a timer and telling the woman that she could not get out of the shower until it went off. He would then take the bed sheets, the woman's pajamas, and basically anything that could potentially be any form of evidence. Then when the victim would get out of the shower, he was gone. And these assaults were not fast. They lasted hours and involved both rape and overall probing of the victim's bodies, in addition to the total just degrading factor of these pictures that were happening. And I have to say, I am so proud of every single one of these women because the fact that they didn't care about his dumb threat to put their pictures on the internet and they called the police anyway. So good on these women for doing that. Investigators would also find that what little evidence was left behind at crime scenes did start to match up between their different cases. One piece of evidence that was found at some of the scenes were shoe prints. There was a print found in some wet dirt at the Lakewood scene. And at the Golden scene, snow for once worked in investigators' favor as footprints were found in the fresh snow leading from the victim's apartment to an adjacent empty field. They were able to deduce that these were made by a certain size of Adidas shoe. A mysterious honeycomb marking would also show up at the Westminster location and in Lakewood. This honeycomb print ended up being matched to what are Under Armour gloves for men. Investigators would get one small piece of DNA evidence from the rapist that would take a while to get connected to somebody, but be important nonetheless. While the rapist took many of the large pieces of evidence that could have had more DNA, he had left behind very small amounts of touch DNA. Touch DNA gives a much smaller profile as to who a perpetrator is. While your hard DNA, like your saliva or your blood, semen, things like that, give really a lot of markers that can point to an individual person, touch DNA is something that happens literally when you touch an object and just a few skin cells come off. 
This small amount of cells has a lot less genetic material, but is still valuable. They found touch DNA in Westminster. This was on the kitchen timer that he had forced the victim to shower for a certain amount of time after the rape with. There was also a small amount of touch DNA found on the victim's actual body in the Golden case. And in the Aurora case, there was a teddy bear that had been on the victim's desk that he had knocked off at some point, also leaving some touch DNA at that scene. So while this specific type of DNA was not enough genetic material to enter into the nationwide database managed by the FBI, they could at least conclude that what markers they had did say that the same person was definitely responsible for all of these incidents. And as the investigation continued, they would at least have this DNA to match against somebody and rule a suspect in or out. While investigators were able to gather a lot of evidence that really confirmed that all these rapes were at the hands of the same person, it wasn't necessarily giving them any better of a picture of who that person was. Five weeks into the task force being assembled on February 9th, the Colorado investigators still had no firm suspects. You know, television really gives us this picture that cases are so linear and can be tied up in this perfect little bow, and that fingerprint and DNA analysis results are immediate and conclusive and wide-ranging, and that a perpetrator will basically always do something to give themselves away. But as we see in a real-life investigation like this, that's not always the case. At one point, the question came up of, if the perpetrator could be a cop or somebody familiar with law enforcement because there was just such incredible care to eliminate evidence. But on the flip side, there's also shows like Forensic Files and CSI. And while I know we all love these shows, I mean, I do, it also does give the general public that has no idea about DNA or law enforcement or anything else like that a really good snapshot of how investigations work and what kind of things can be incriminating. So really, a Joe Schmo that watches Forensic Files could probably get pretty far. One thing that investigators did have to work off of was another amazing piece of information that the golden victim had gotten from her assailant. She had the presence of mind and the wherewithal to be able to speak to her assailant and ask him questions as he was kind of in between these really heinous acts. And he had mentioned that he spoke multiple languages, which made investigators wonder if he could have been military. And I just have to point out how incredible it is that, I mean, so much information that they had to go on in this investigation was specifically from this victim in the Golden case. And her just total wherewithal to try to pack away as much information about this guy as possible is just, it gives me chills that somebody could do that because she truly gave investigators information that would be key to making sure that this man never did this to anybody else ever again. So while investigators were still looking into these rapes, they started to kind of branch out and look for other things that could be possibly tied to a rapist or somebody stalking a victim. And one of these things was looking for suspicious cars. At one point, they actually got surveillance footage near one of the rape victim's homes. And in the lapse of 12 hours of surveillance, they saw this one particular truck drive by 10 times. And it was a white truck, but the video was just blurry enough that it was impossible to discern a license plate. 
But you could tell from the surveillance footage that there was one big identifying factor about this particular truck. The passenger side mirror was broken. It was there, but kind of hanging off. Well, eventually, a Lakewood crime analyst that was helping out with the task force and was actually pretty new to the job got one small lead that ended up really being something the investigators needed to start to break this open. A few weeks before the attempted rape in Lakewood, a woman had called regarding a suspicious truck. The location of the report was within a half a block of the victim's house in Lakewood. So, of course, they were able to pull up the report since this was looked into by police. And it showed that this truck was a 1993 white Mazda. And they also had access to who it was registered to. It was registered to Mark Patrick O'Leary. Lakewood detective Aaron Hassel jumped on this lead. He had one thing working for him. Lakewood police cars have cameras attached to them that are constantly taking pictures of any license plate that patrolmen pass as they move along the route. And all of these pictures that are taken are stored in a database. So Detective Hassel ended up looking into this database, looked up the plate number, and ended up getting a clearer image of O'Leary's truck than the ones that were found in the surveillance footage. However, comparing both this photo to the grainy one from surveillance videos showed that this was the same truck. It had a broken passenger side mirror. Both trucks had the same type of tow hitch and both had a very specific smudge on the back bumper, similar to what you would have if you had a bumper sticker there and took it off. So finally, after six weeks of diligent work, investigators had a name, Mark O'Leary. And once the team had stumbled across him, they learned a lot. While O'Leary had no criminal record, he did serve in the army and was an army veteran. He did two tours in South Korea and served in the reserves. So this definitely was in line with the information the golden victim had learned about him learning multiple languages. They also found that he owned a pornography site that had been active since September 2008. Being a military man, he had moved a number of times, but had recently moved to the county where all of the rapes had occurred, Jefferson County, in 2009. And that timeline added up with every single rape that had occurred in the four different cities. The task force started surveillance on Mark O'Leary on February 11th at his home. The police initially followed a male and female who left the house and went to a restaurant not too far from the home. At that location, FBI agents were able to get cups from the restaurant with DNA on them. In the meantime, thinking that O'Leary was at the restaurant being surveilled by other agents, an agent waited at the home and was primed to install a small camera near the home to do some additional surveillance. But they approached the home and knocked on the door just to be safe. And somebody answered the door. And that somebody was Mark O'Leary. They would find out later the other agents had actually been following his brother. The agent jumped into a quick fallback plan and basically was working under the guise that they were canvassing in the area in regards to a possible burglary. And the agent gave him a fake flyer and said, hey, okay, what's your name? And he said, Mark O'Leary, confirming that they were following probably the wrong person. But the two brothers looked very, very similar. 
Once they had the DNA from his brother, Michael, the CBI started to work on that through the night. And that's a process that usually takes about two months. But by the next day, they had the DNA matched as the one that they had found on the victims. But this DNA, because it was touch DNA and such a small amount of genetic material, was a familial match. It could have been anybody in the male side of the O'Leary family. So now, investigators had two O'Leary suspects instead of just one. It even opened up the question of if the brothers could have been working together. So for an investigation that went from having no suspects to one that had two was a big surprise. Next, investigators had to rule out which O'Learys were not a good suspect. The father of Mark and Michael were easy to rule out for investigators. He was elderly, probably a little too old to do these very physical crimes, and he didn't even live in the state. Looking into timelines through social media and some other avenues, they were able to rule out the brother Michael O'Leary just because there were some times that he was not around when the crimes occurred. So at this point, the cases were now extremely solid, both in the evidence connecting all of them and the way that they could rule in or out that it was specifically Mark O'Leary that committed them. Mark O'Leary was arrested on February 13, 2011. The CBI, FBI, Lakewood, Aurora, Westminster, and Golden PD all went in to make the arrest together. And Golden Detective Galbraith was one of them. She knew the second that she saw Mark O'Leary's reaction that they had their guy. But there was one last thing she had to check. As she patted him down to see if he had any weapons, she lifted his pant legs and checked for a birthmark. She found an egg-shaped birthmark on one of his calves that the golden victim had seen, and that confirmed that they had their guy. Once informed of why he was being arrested and of his rights, O'Leary immediately asked for a lawyer. He was in cuffs and in a car at 8.35 a.m. and was taken to Jefferson County Jail, where a bond was set for $5 million. The ensuing search of his house was a jackpot for investigators. They found some really key evidence that they knew linked him to all of these cases. These included Adidas shoes matching the size and prints found at the scenes, Under Armour gloves with the honeycomb pattern that also matched evidence of the scenes. A black mask, a pink Sony Cybershot camera stolen from the Westminster victim and used in Golden. And women's underwear from all of the victims that he kept as trophies. A forensic computer specialist would also take his computer into the lab and start working to de-encrypt files and see what was on his hard drives right away. While the physical evidence in O'Leary's home was easy to find, these pieces of digital evidence would take until the beginning of March to get off of O'Leary's computer, and they would end up finding around 400 pictures in a folder called simply Girls. These pictures included pictures of the victims from both the Westminster and the Golden Rate. In learning more about O'Leary, investigators would find out he had a girlfriend named Amy Wanzi. And she really thought he was really 
a gentlemanly boyfriend and took care of her and looked out for her. Although she did mention that it seemed like there was a level of fear that was needed in the bedroom for him. But she was totally shocked and immediately sickened by what she found out. And I have to give Amy some props on this because you hear so often that these girls have a hard time believing somebody could do this. And I can imagine it just blindsides you when it happens. But sometimes a significant other will stand by them thinking that they couldn't have done this when they very clearly did. So I certainly can appreciate that Amy really watched out for the women in this case and took in that information and realized that he had done what he did and the, you know, the fact that her instinct really pushed her towards believing these women. O'Leary initially said that he was not the person that committed these crimes, but that didn't really last very long, and he actually ended up pleading guilty in October of 2011. His sentencing took place on December 12, 2011, where some of the victims made impact statements, and O'Leary himself spoke at the sentencing. According to Corin Miller's reporting for Women's Health, at the sentencing, O'Leary said, quote, I'm standing here because I need to be in prison. I know that probably more than anyone in this room. I've known it for a while, unquote. O'Leary taking a plea deal meant that that kept his victims from having to recount their horrific experiences in court while also putting him in jail for good. So I will at least commend him on that. He was convicted of raping three Colorado women, attempted rape of the fourth victim, and a range of kidnapping and burglary charges. At the age of 32 when he pled guilty, he was facing 39 counts of felony and pled guilty to 28 of them. He was then sentenced to 327 and a half years in prison. According to Michael Roberts' reporting for Westward, Judge Philip McNulty had said if he quote, didn't smack him with a sentence long enough to keep him off the streets forever. He would be derelict in his duty, unquote. And Judge McNulty, we can all thank you for doing that. So let's wrap up with a few musings. And I'll be honest, I have a lot of thoughts about these cases. Musing number one, the psychology of rape is all about control anyway. But another thing that was common to O'Leary's M.O. was that he often used the victim's own belongings against them, using knives from their kitchens or using their own articles of clothing, shoelaces, etc. to tie them up. He definitely upped the ante of control in his sexual assaults. Musing number two. The pictures also tell an interesting thing about Mark O'Leary. As we know, many serial killers and serial rapists take trophies from their victims. And while he was known to take underwear from his victims, he also took these very detailed pictures. And we know that that's very likely just so he can relive these attacks over and over and over when he saw fit. Musing number three. I do really find it wild, the psychology behind these men that do such violence towards women, but also have a girlfriend. Honestly, hearing this about O'Leary gives me very Ted Bundy vibes. Like, they're the kind of guys that are telling their girlfriends to make sure to lock their door and be safe. But they're the ones that are carrying out these heinous crimes on other women. Musing number four. O'Leary is also one of those guys that has to break our perception that rapists and molesters look a certain way. 
Now, I don't think he's the most great looking guy in the face of the planet, but he's not terrible. And we have to stop thinking that these guys that do things like this are the creeper looking white van kind of guys. They're really not. Musing number five. Now, this one's a little rambling, but stay with me. O'Leary would later say that he basically could get sex whenever he wanted. He was a good enough looking guy. He had lots of girlfriends, could kind of go to a bar and pick up a girl, was confident, wasn't one of those that was a wallflower and, you know, hating women because he couldn't have one. So I do see a level of pornography culture in this particular case. And it's a little fresh in my mind because I've been watching both the movie and the series Hot Girls Wanted that's been produced by Rashida Jones, which if you haven't watched, I totally recommend. It's very interesting. Basically kind of tackles a lot of different perspectives in the porn industry and kind of surrounding industries like cam girls and stuff like that. But something they talk about a lot is the huge percentage of porn that shows aggression towards women and that includes things like hair pulling and just like general rough sex and things like that and you can kind of see how these two are connected because even though he could have sex whenever he wanted it clearly wasn't violent enough for him he wasn't in control enough and while that could just be something that's in O'Leary's head it's also something that's starting to really be pervasive over our culture in general. And on top of it, the fact that he owned a porn site that, let's be honest, he was probably just waiting to put these pictures up on and kind of perpetuating that cycle. So it just ended up being interesting me researching this case at the same time that I've been watching that movie and series because it really kind of linked together for me. And this really is probably a really good example of a case that comes out of that really pervasive, aggressive porn that is so much a part of our culture now. Okay, everybody. So that brings us to the end of this episode. And you might be wondering why this is a two-parter, because I told you about cases, I told you about an arrest, and I told you the guy's in jail. But we have a few more things to cover, because Colorado was not the only state O'Leary would be convicted in for rape. So next week, we'll be covering a few things. I'm going to touch base on his other crimes, as well as an interview he had with our favorite FBI agent, John Grusing, who you will remember from our Scott Kimball and Mark Redwine cases. And we'll also talk about some of the reasoning O'Leary had for his crimes, including a very bizarre secret society. In the meantime, please make sure to follow or subscribe to Altitude Crime on your favorite podcast platform and connect with me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast and Twitter and Facebook at Altitude Crime. You can also visit the website altitudecrime.com for source materials and the link to buy merchandise. Well, Crime Clan, as always, I'm so excited you chose to spend this time of the week with me, and I cannot wait to tell you the second part of this story next week on Altitude Crime. Episode 22, An Unbelievable Crime, Part 1, was written, recorded, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music provided by Podbean.com.